Good morning and welcome to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Nolan Bicknell. With me as always is my co-host Robert Zirk. On today's show, Doug Brown, the public guardian and trustee of Manitoba, joins us to discuss why it's important to have an up-to-date will. We're also going to be joined by Paul K. Chappelle, an author, speaker, and war veteran. He's going to share his story and discuss why there's a need for peace literacy. Then we'll speak with Isan Gardi, the executive director of the National Council of Canadian Muslims, to discuss human rights, media, and the politics of xenophobia. The Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre is also closing its 2016-17 season with a new play called Sarah Ballenden. We'll speak with Sarah Lees MacArthur, who plays the role of Sarah Ballenden, to learn more. And citizen reporter Armand Martin brings us a preview of the Rainbow Harmony Project's upcoming spring concert, Prairie Lullaby. We've got all this, some great tunes, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Good morning and welcome to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning. Robert, how was your week without me? Did you did you fare well? It was a good week. But that being said, happy to have you back. Oh, it's great to be how back. Was your, how was your week away? I was out vacation? west, out by Canmore, Alberta, Canada, for a wonderful wedding. Congratulations to Grace and Wyatt. Uh, wonderful wedding, perfect day. Everything was just phenomenal. Got to see some old high school friends, so, you know, couldn't, couldn't have asked for a better week. Sounds fantastic. It was great. So today's show is going to be pretty cool. We're going to be talking to a whole bunch of different people on a wide array of, of things, so we might as well just get right into it. Doug Brown is on his way into the studio next. He's the public guardian and trustee of Manitoba. He's going to be telling us all about why it's important to have your affairs up to date when it comes to having an up to date will next week or this coming week, I guess, is Will Week. Uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of different information sessions that you can find out that the Winnipeg Foundation is running. Uh, so stay tuned for that. We'll have all that information coming up after our first song. But first. Here's Gary Puckett and the Union Gap with Lady Willpower right here on River City 360. Of what I might have on my mind One thing you can be sure of I'll take good care of your love If you will let me give you mine Lady, will power It's now or never Give your love Well, there's so much you have to learn 
Thank you for listening to River City 360. Robert Zirk here with you this morning, and I am joined by a very special guest, Doug Brown from the Public Guardian and Trustee of Manitoba. Doug, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, good morning. Thank you for the invitation. So first of all, what exactly does the Public Guardian and Trustee of Manitoba do? What we do is, is we manage the affairs of people who are no longer capable of managing their own affairs. And, and so it could be a case where somebody has uh, uh, mental health issues and we become appointed under the Mental Health Act. It could be by a court order or some other means. And in addition to that, we also uh, deal with the states of people who, who have no one else available to act. So we're, we're a government agency, but what we do is we basically step in as a last resort. So if there's no family available or, or no one else who can take over the care of a person or, or the management of their finances or medical decisions, that's when our office would, would be appointed. One of the things that the Public Guardian Trustee of Manitoba does every year in conjunction with the Winnipeg Foundation is Will Week, which is coming up April 24th through 28th. And these are sessions where local lawyers are presenting about how to create a will, how to update a will, how to make a charitable gift in your will. So why is it important for people to create and maintain an up-to-date will? It's really important for, for several reasons. You know, as a, as an, as a person, you, you may have certain items or possessions that you have or want certain family to have uh, your possessions once you pass away. Uh, the will's the way to do it. That, that's the legal document that, that kind of gives the instructions once you have died as to, to where you want your, your, uh, all your assets or all your valuable possessions, those sorts of things to go. It's also important in terms of families. It's obviously a very disruptive time when somebody passes away. If you load on top of that, uh, family trying to figure out where uh, their loved one's possessions are to go or what's to happen with their estate, that's probably the worst possible time to burden family with that. So really the, the planning, the, the doing a will and the planning is really setting, making sure that your wishes and your intentions can be carried out, uh, hopefully with as minimal disruption as possible to your family. Can you give us a sense of Manitoba in general? Do most Manitobans have a will? Tough to put a percentage on it. I'd say it's obviously over the years become more and more of something that people are aware of, you know, and that's partly why we do the Will Week is to try to get more of the awareness out there. But there's two combinations. You get a certain part of the population who haven't done a will. So then when they pass, there are other laws that take effect to decide where their estate goes, but it's a more cumbersome process. But there's also another category of people who who have done their will, as an example, but maybe they did it 10 years ago, maybe they did it 15 years ago, and they haven't looked at it in a while. So things like the executors that are named in the will are no longer available or, or can't act. Uh, you know, maybe their families changed, maybe they've remarried or something of that nature, and now there's, uh, you know, different different people to consider. Those situations arise as well. And, and so, as an example, our office 
won't generally won't act for an estate unless there's no one else available. A lot of the people that we end up acting for actually do have a will, but you know they're they're elderly, and by the time the will came into effect, the people that they had named in the will were no longer available. So, so really, a good piece of advice for your listeners is even if you've done a will, you know, pull it out every. Th- even three years, two to three years, three to five years, whatever, pull it out periodically and just kind of take a look at it and make sure it's really still fitting your situation. Absolutely. What exactly happens in the event that someone passes away and they don't have a will? How exactly does that work? Yeah. So there, there are laws in, in Manitoba and other provinces as well that, that set out how an estate or the person's uh, possessions and estate will be distributed. So generally what will happen is if, they, if there's a spouse involved or a com- you know, wife, husband or a common law spouse, uh, they would be first to inherit either all or a portion of the estate. And then there's a whole kind of laundry list of, of family relations that you go through under that law. So then it would be the children. If there are no children, then you'd look up to whether the parents were still living. And it even goes as far into like nieces and nephews and, and kind of that long family tree uh, out the distance. So it can be very difficult at times. And, and part of what our office will do in some cases is uh, an example. Is if, if there is somebody who, who has the estate, part of what we do is we have to trace that family tree and where it's very interesting is you you have we still have situations where people who say have uh, immigrated from from eastern europe or some some other country earlier in the 20th century uh we're now trying to trace family trees that could literally be somewhere else in the world wow so all the more reason then to make sure that you have a will and that it's kept up to date every so often So with Will Week coming up this coming week, April 24th through 28th, if someone is interested in learning more about Will Week or registering for one of the sessions, I understand it's fairly popular. Some of them have already reached their full capacity. But if someone is interested in learning more or registering, how can they do so? Where can they go to get more information? Yeah, there's really two ways to register. Probably now that we're getting close to the week, the best way would be by calling uh, 204 nine four eight three three nine four and uh that's uh, an answering machine where we're placing people into the sessions that they'd like to be in the other way you can is is emailing our office at uh, pgt at gov.mb.ca so what we could what you could do is give us an idea of what end of the city that you'd like to go to a session and and certainly we'll try to accommodate you in any available space that's you know the right day for you the right time and uh, the end of the city that you're located at excellent and as always people can visit winnipegwill.com if they'd like to check out the full listing of will week sessions doug brown i want to thank you so much for joining me in the studio this morning oh great thank you Thanks, Robert. To find out more about the public guardian and trustee, you can visit www.gov.mb.ca slash public trustee. And to learn more about Will Week, you can visit winnipegwill.com. And for those of you who want to hear more from Doug Brown, he's going to be on Grant Patterson's show this coming Tuesday, April 25th, between 1 and 2 p.m., right here on CGNU.
Coming up after the break, senior producer Shailen McMahon recently spoke with West Point graduate Iraq War veteran, speaker and author Paul K. Chappelle. We're going to hear his very interesting story and find out more about his advocacy for peace literacy. But before we get to that, here's Jackie DeShannon with Put a Little Love in Your Heart right here on River City 360. Think of your fellow man, lend him a helping hand. Welcome back to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning, and now we're joined in studio by a wonderful guest. We have senior producer of River City 360, Shailen McMahon. Shailen, thank you for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me. So you have a wonderful story to tell us about. You spoke with uh, Paul K. Chappelle. Now, for those who haven't heard of Mr. Chappelle, he is a the Peace Leadership Director of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, an Iraq War veteran, and author of multiple books, Road to Pe- the Road to Peace Books series. So um, tell me a little bit about your conversation with Paul K. Chappelle and what you guys sort of spoke about. Yeah, so Paul is touring cities around the world right now to promote and discuss peace literacy. He was in Winnipeg last week, and as you said, I got to sit down with him and chat with him, and it was actually the first time that I had ever really heard of the term peace literacy. So right to start off with, I just asked him to begin by explaining what exactly peace literacy is. It's the idea that humans have to become literate in peace, just like they're literate in reading and writing. And in every other field, whether it's playing basketball or playing baseball or playing hockey or playing an instrument or math or martial arts, people realize they have to get training 
and people train for years to be proficient in basketball or playing an instrument or any kind of serious art form. And we have to recognize that peace requires as much, if not more, training than those endeavors. But our society doesn't train us for peace. And if we're going to survive as a species in the 21st century and have healthy democracies and healthy communities and families, we really have to understand the importance of becoming literate in peace and how much depends upon that. So peace literacy is the process of learning the fundamental requirements of peace, like how people can basically deal with negative emotions and turn it into something that they can positively deal with? Yeah, exactly. So Paul says to think of peace literacy as a skill set that equips people to deal with conflict and negative feelings in a healthy way. When I was growing up, I grew up in the United States and Alabama. There were so many skills I was never taught. I was never taught how to resolve conflict. I was never taught how to deal with my own aggression or other people's aggression. I was never taught how to calm myself down or calm other people down. I was never taught how to overcome fear. One of the most important life skills you can have is how to overcome fear. I was never taught how to listen with empathy. And those tr- those skills also transfer into the ability to practice nonviolence on a more social scale. In keeping with the reading and writing literacy analogy, Paul also talks about being pre-literate. So if you were to go back to 11 or 1200 BC, this is around the time period of the Trojan War. If you went back to 11 or 1200 BC in ancient Greece and you were to talk to them about reading and writing, they really wouldn't know what that means because the society was almost completely unable to read. And so when a society is pre-literate, they don't really know why they should know how to read. It's just, they don't even see what the purpose of it is, right? If you go back to 11 or 1200 BC and you talk to the ancient Greeks about learning how to read, they'll say, well, what's the point of that? Uh, why not just tell the person or send a messenger to tell the person? And if you say, well, you can read a book or read a letter, they don't know what a book or a letter is. Pre-literate in peace means that if you talk to people about peace literacy, they say, what does that mean? Like, what's the point of that? And we're not at a point yet where people understand how critically important it is that we have this. We're not at that level yet with peace literacy. People are still trying to understand, okay, why is there so much racism, so much sexism, war, all these problems around the world? We're not dealing effectively with environmental issues. And then when you say, well, what if we were taught the skill set of peace? So I I, I understand. Now, the literacy and sort of pre-literate analogy makes sense, but... It seems like as a society, we don't know how valuable or how important peace can be because we've been at war with each other forever, like as a society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of the world being pre-literate in peace literacy right now, Paul actually compares that to the current education systems and what many students are actually learning in school. What if students had as much training in peace skills as they were given in math skills? I learned math all the way through calculus too, 13 years of math. I never use math anymore other than elementary school math. And math is certainly important, but isn't peace literacy at least as important as math? Because I use peace literacy skills every day with coworkers, strangers, friends, family, for trying to make the world better. In any kind of social cause, you have to have some sort of skill set to be as effective as you can be. So how did uh, Paul K. Chappelle discover this concept of peace literacy in the first place? He said it actually all began when he was a kid. He grew up in a violent household and he never really knew how to deal with his feelings of anger from having experienced that violence. My father fought in the Korean and Vietnam Wars and he had a lot of war trauma. And I had a very strong sense of alienation as a child because I grew up in Alabama. My mother's Korean, my father's half white and half black. And growing up in a violent household, 
uh, dealing with alienation and some bullying, I, I developed a lot of behavioral problems as a child. I got kicked out of elementary school for fighting, almost got kicked out of middle school, got suspended in high school for fighting. And when I was in high school, I badly wanted to join a violent extremist group. And one reason why I never joined a violent extremist group is because back then, there was no violent extremist group that would take somebody who's part black, part Asian, and part white. That puts uh, peace literacy into perspective regarding the world's current situation. Uh, talking about extremist groups is, a, is very relevant to a lot of the situations, both here in Canada and around the world, uh, with gangs domestically and terror groups here and abroad. Mm-hmm. Paul says that he wishes he had actually had peace education when he was younger as well. And you have these youth who are alienated, they're suffering from trauma or aggression, and they're being recruited to ISIS or to extremist groups of all kinds, right? Uh, Neo-Nazi groups. And I was in that very vulnerable category. And when I talk about peace literacy and teach it, these are skills that all people can use. But I, when I talk to a class, I always put the person I was when I was 15 years old in the back of the class. And I'm always trying to reach that person. So this is able to give people of all different backgrounds important life skills, but especially the people who are dealing with trauma and aggression. These are the things I wish I would have learned when I was that age. He is also an Iraq war veteran, and he says it was serving in the army that actually introduced him to peace education in the first place. I think that the peace education is so bad in the U.S. when I was growing up is that the best peace training I got was at the United States Military Academy at West Point. I graduated from West Point, and West Point taught me a lot of really useful skills for how to interact with people. And I think that's a, a sign of, of how little is, this is taught. And being an Iraq war veteran and being in the Army, seeing that the old methods of waging war, they're not, they're not effective in the 21st century. The way that we're fighting wars now, the way that we're dealing with terrorism with 20th century thinking, it's not going to be able to deal with these issues, which are really ideological issues and how people think. And we have to have a much more effective way to deal with these problems. And I asked Paul if peace literacy was the first step in dealing with today's problems and ending war and creating a more peaceful world. And although eradicating war goes hand in hand with peace literacy, he said that that's not really what it's all about. The bottom line is if people don't have the tools or the skills or the knowledge or understanding to effectively deal with difficult issues, if people don't have the skill set they need, like if you have a basketball team and no one's taught how to play basketball, it's going to be a mess. If you have an orchestra play Beethoven, no one's taught how to play their instruments, it's going to be a mess. If you have an engineering problem and the engineers don't know math, or if you have a medical problem and the people don't know anything about the healing process, it's going to be a mess. So we have to give people skills to make the world more peaceful. And I think that we have to recognize how important this is if we're going to solve any of these very serious issues in ways that don't deal with symptoms. So what peace literacy is about is dealing with the root causes rather than dealing with symptoms. So peace literacy is preventative rather than reactive. Mm-hmm. Paul says that violence is often a symptom of a larger issue within many individuals, and peace literacy aims to deal with the larger issue rather than the symptom, which, like he said, is violence in many cases. The eruption of violence could be like a smallpox sore, but the underlying viruses are what we have to deal with, the virus that causes the smallpox sores. And a lot of our social policies, political policies, global policies, they deal with the smallpox sore. They don't deal with the virus. We don't deal with the underlying conditions and ways of thinking and the underlying trauma that causes people to act out violently. 
And so if you really want to be serious about reducing violence, we have to deal with the root causes, the viruses of violence, rather than the symptoms of violence. The viruses of violence. That's a very interesting uh, concept. Um, it's a wonderful conversation that you were able to have with uh, Paul K. Chappelle, and he uh, introduced some really interesting concepts. How can our listeners find out more about peace literacy if they would like to? Paul's website is peacefulrevolution.com if anyone wants to check it out. That's peacefulrevolution.com. And you can find more peace literacy resources on the website as well as Paul's books if anyone is interested. Perfect. Well, thank you to Paul K. Chappelle for speaking with you, Shailen uh, McMahon, <laughs> our senior producer here at River City 360. Thanks so much for your time, and uh, we'll see you next week. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, Shailen. And to learn more about Paul K. Chappelle, you can visit his website at paulkchappelle, that's C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L dot com. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from Isan Gardi, the Executive Director of the National Council of Canadian Muslims. I sat down with him at the At the Heart of Human Rights is Human Dignity conference several weeks ago to discuss human rights, media, and the politics of xenophobia. But before we get to that, we're going to hear a quick song. Here's Teresa Brewer with Everybody Loves Somebody, right here on River City 360. Everybody loves somebody sometime. Everybody falls in love somehow. Something in your kiss just told me my sometime. Thank you.
Hassan Gardi, the executive director of the National Council of Canadian Muslims. At the at the Heart of Human Rights is Human Dignity Conference, you presented a session that dealt with the media and xenophobia. Could you tell us a little bit about the session? Mm. Uh, we talked about the, the impact uh, that the media has on how uh, issues are framed in the public discourse. Uh, and we also discussed uh, as well the impact and influence that our elected officials and leaders have and the role and responsibility that they have uh, in speaking out and ensuring that uh, Canadians of all backgrounds are treated equally. What are some examples of how that's played out in the media recently? I guess the most obvious recent example would be the uh, near hysteria that has been evoked by the proposal of Motion 103 by MP Ikra Khalid, uh, a motion which really has no power or effect in law, is just uh, a motion put forward as a symbolic action to condemn Islamophobia and all forms of systemic racism and discrimination, as well as to call on the Canadian Department of Heritage to strike a committee to actually study the issue of systemic discrimination uh, and come up with recommendations about how Canada can take a all-of-government approach to dealing with this issue. What do people need to do in terms of the messaging that they're being given by the media, especially in an era where we're seeing all of these fake news outlets, not just the fake news outlets themselves, but the fact that some real news outlets end up picking up some of these fake news stories? Well, I think it's important that... uh Canadians of all backgrounds become critical consumers of media, that they uh, ensure that they are holding media to account, that media itself as well, uh, media institutions and organizations as well, are living up to the journalistic ethics and standards that are set forth uh, and taught in journalism schools, and to ensure that you know we speak out and hold uh, media to account to to make sure that the stories that they are telling are balanced and contextualized and reflect the nuances of stories as opposed to just reporting for the sake of reporting and getting the one to be the scoop. What are some other ways that people can get involved in terms of holding media to account? Like what are what would be some concrete ways that people can ensure that false messages aren't being spread in this way? Well, there's the traditional methods of writing letters to the editor, writing opinion editorials as well to put forward your argument in a way that is uh, a bit more complex and and reflects uh, different facets of an issue are important avenues. There's uh, the growth and the advent of social media as well to give feedback immediately to reporters, to their editors about what you think about the kind of reporting that they're doing. But I think it's also equally important that we acknowledge and recognize you know, when reporters and when media get it right, because too, all too often, you know, people think to write in critically, which they should do, and it's important for them to do, but they forget to write in when media do write and do put forward stories that are balanced, that are, you know, looking at different sides of an issue, uh, because it's, uh, it's a reality that when that happens, the same reporters are also getting hate mail from the people who are trying to promote and promulgate these uh, stereotypes and myths and misperceptions about various different communities, be they, you know, uh, targeting the black Canadian community, LGBTQ community, uh, the indigenous Canadian community, Jewish community, Muslim community. There's a common theme 
uh, amongst hatred uh, that is shared across the board. And, uh, you know, we have to recognize that an attack on one community is an attack on all Canadians. The industry of journalism has been going through a lot of struggles and we've seen daily newspapers close down. Do you think that there is a connection between not having enough funds for journalism outlets to thrive and to cover certain stories and this proliferation of news that's being made up? That's certainly a a challenge and and an important one that you raise, the economic challenge. At the end of the day, uh, you know, the the bottom line is the bottom line. And uh, we have to remember that media outlets and media organizations are also businesses. They have shareholders and they have revenue that they have to generate and and, uh, viewership and and readership that they have to increase in order to be able to become and sustain viable business models. At the same time, I think there is a business case to be made to ensure that media organizations have different perspectives, have these balanced uh, reporting going on because it does appeal to a larger, broader audience. It ties in with what you've mentioned and what a lot of the speakers have mentioned, which is that people can't remain silent when they see something that's not right, that's happening in their community because it affects everybody. This, I'm glad you brought that up because this was a common theme that we heard after the tragic and horrific terrorist shootings in Quebec City was that words matter. And certainly words do matter and the words our elected officials and our media outlets use do impact and influence the public discourse. Uh, Equally, lack of words also matters when elected officials or when media don't cover issues and, and speak to them. It creates an atmosphere, an environment which actually fosters in this, this environment of fear and this creation of the otherization of entire communities. And what we as an organization have noticed and, and are deeply concerned about at the National Council of Canadian Muslims is the dramatic rise that we've seen in anti-Muslim incidents. It's unprecedented uh, in recent times. We've had a doubling of hate crimes targeting Canadian Muslims in the last couple of years, according to Statistics Canada. The new uh, data is coming out in a week or so. But the challenge is, of course, that this data is two years old. We only find out what Stats Can is reporting two years after the fact. And we have other polling as well that is being done on a regular basis, whether it's by organizations like Abacus or Forum, which indicate an increase in anti-Muslim sentiment and, and distrust of Muslims. And this from our viewpoint, uh, it can be addressed by three sort of strategies, a three-pronged strategy, education and outreach, and we are doing some of those activities. For example, there was a, a campaign that we worked on with the Ontario Council for Agencies Serving Immigrants called Toronto for All, with posters around Toronto. Another one that has just been produced called Break the Behavior, which your listeners can check out at breakthebehavior.ca. It's uh, two 30-second ads that are being aired in stations in Ontario that we're hoping to get aired across the country country, talking about how people can speak out and speak up when they hear racist discourse. And we've also launched a charter for inclusive communities across this country. It was launched last summer in six different cities, which is being endorsed by municipalities and elected officials, organizations, high-profile individuals across the country. The second prong would be coalitions, forming coalitions, both traditional as well as unorthodox coalitions. When we've seen these unorthodox coalitions spring up both in the U.S. as well as here in Canada, in the wake of the election of Donald Trump, we've had coalition formed between the American Jewish Committee as well as the Islamic Society of North America, something that's unprecedented organizations like this getting together. We've had, you know, in the wake of the shootings in Quebec, peace rings being formed around mosques where average citizens are coming out and 
holding hands and demonstrating their solidarity and support. The final prong that we've identified that's important in this battle against Islamophobia and other forms of xenophobia is government policy, and which is why in the wake of the Quebec shooting, we issued an open letter calling on all three levels of government to take concrete steps to address Islamophobia as well as other forms of racism and discrimination, whether it's anti-Semitism, homophobia, you name it. So at the municipal level, we're calling on municipal governments to provide more funding and resources and training for police services to collect hate crimes data. At the provincial level, we're calling for the creation of uh, anti-racism directorates, just like the one that has been created in Ontario recently, for that to be replicated in provinces across the country and hopefully federally as well. And then as well for there to be a mandatory course for secondary students, uh, since education falls under the provincial rubric, a mandatory course for secondary students discussing the issue of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and other forms of systemic racism and how to address it for teachers as well as students. And then finally, at the federal level, uh, we're calling for uh, a National Day of Remembrance for January 29th, when six Canadian Muslim men were shot while in prayer at a mosque, the first time in my recollection in in Canadian history when this has happened in a house of worship, uh, and also for the Government of Canada to adopt Motion 103, which is going to be voted on tomorrow, I believe. That's excellent. And education goes a long way. We, we had heard one of the other speakers mentioning that there are youth that are in their teens and they're engaging in horrible acts of racism. So having that education at an early age will go a long way toward creating a more accepting society. I'm glad you brought up education because that's something that I think is, is going to play a key role. And, you know, we are hearing about the bullying of school children on a regular basis. And, and this is a, I mean, bullying has gone on for ages, but obviously we live in this connected world where, you know, we have cyberbullying and other aspects to bullying that didn't exist before. And it's deeply concerning because we're hearing about not just bullying between students, but also bullying by teachers of students. And I like what the former imam of the Quebec City Mosque said at his eulogy in Quebec City for the the six men who had been shot. He said that there were not six victims in the shooting. There were seven. And he identified the shooter, Alexandre Bissonnette, as one of the victims because his life is ruined. And his family's lives and and his friends' lives ruined because of this horrific act uh, that they will have to pay the price for. Uh, And so in the same way, in the classroom, it's not just the students being bullied that are the victims, it's the students doing the bullying that are also the victims, because why are they doing this bullying? They're doing this bullying because of their environment, because of what they're surrounded by, and because of the information that they are receiving, and these myths, again, and stereotypes about the other that they're then acting on. The last bit I would like to add for your listeners is I would encourage them to visit our website, nccm.ca forward slash charter. That's uh, nccm.ca forward slash charter. And to endorse the Charter for Inclusive Communities and to call on their elected officials, to call on their universities, their institutions, civil society organizations, unions, governments, and others to endorse it as well. Uh, It's going to take a lot of effort and time, uh, but this is a battle that uh, we can't afford to lose and that it's going to require everyone to pitch in. Excellent. Isan, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Robert. Thanks, Robert. As an update to that story, Motion 103, which Isan referenced, is the motion calling on the government of Canada to condemn Islamophobia and all forms of systemic racism and religious discrimination. It passed by a vote of 201 to 91 on March 23, 2017. You can learn more about the National Council of Canadian Muslims at nccm.ca, and you can visit breakthebehavior.ca to take a pledge against racism and discrimination.
Coming up after the break, recently the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre premiered its new historical drama, Sarah Ballenden, and we'll speak with the actor in the title role, Sarah Lee MacArthur, to learn more about it. But before we get to that, here are the Amos Brothers with You Were Meant For Me, right here on River City 360. You were meant for me I was meant for you She was done You were all the sweet things Rolled up in one You're like a plaintive melody That never lets me free For I'm content The angels must have sent you and they made you just for me. Listening to River City 360, Nolan Bicknell on location right now, actually at Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre. And I'm speaking with Sarah Lees MacArthur. She's the lead actor in the new play, Sarah Ballenden, which is on now until May 13th. Sarah Lees, thank you for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. So um, maybe before we get started into your role and, and the in the lead character, tell me a little bit about Sarah Ballenden and, and her story uh, and how it relates to um, the founding of, of Canada even. Well, uh, Sarah Ballenden was a mixed blood, meaning she was indigenous and uh, European descent, uh, wife of the chief factor of the uh, Upper Fort Gary in 1850. Um, that's when the most of the action takes place um, uh, in our play. And essentially, she um, came under fire from some of the English women who had fairly recently moved to the fort and were willing to believe the worst about her and they started uh, spreading rumors that she was having an affair with Captain Christopher Foss and since this was uh, discovered while her husband was away Captain Foss volunteered to sue um, for defamation of character for him and Sarah against some of the other uh, settlers in the fort. 
So this is a very uh, salacious tale, you could say. Um, why do you think that this story is relevant for today's audience? There's still a lot of racial tension in Canada, um, especially between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. There has been a one-sided history taught to all Canadians um, since Canada has become Canada. And the conversation has recently start to, started to swing the other way um, and started to include uh, more groups. And now people, these stories are coming out. And a lot of these stories, like Sarah Ballin's stories, story, was um, they're, they're not very well documented. So I think it's really important for us to be aware of our history. Um, and to understand why some people might be in the position they're in at this point in, in our time. So this is the ninth play, I understand, written by Maureen Hunter. It's the world premiere that just premiered earlier this week. What was your preparation like in preparing for this role? Well, there are a lot of words, and I'm in uh, most of the play. So I had to learn a lot of lines, <laughs> um, which goes without saying. Um, but I definitely did some research into Sarah Ballenden. I hadn't known of her until I knew of this play. Um, and I learned more about the the Hudson Bay Company, uh, how what is now Canada would have been at around the time of the play and uh, how how uh, interracial relations were at that time because it was still very much the fur trade and um, and it hadn't really progressed to the point of residential schools yet so there was and the Métis people were established but it wasn't something that had been around for a long time you know, so, so yeah, it was it's still very fresh and new, and, and so I did a lot of research into into finding out how people would have treated each other, how they would have uh, conducted themselves toward one another. You, when when people view this play, what do you hope they come away with when when an audience sits down and, and watches Sarah Ballenden? Um, I hope that they see that. Um, that basically ganging up on someone uh, can be extremely damaging and have repercussions uh, far beyond the immediate. And that I hope they can see that that we're we're not that different. Not saying like us as modern day people aren't that different from people back then. That's true. But also we're not that different from one another. And, um, and we all have the same kind of feelings. And it is a human tendency to gang up on a weak person or to have jealousy. Um, and maybe to just be able to hold a mirror to themselves and accept those parts of themselves and people around them and to know, you know, basically the golden rule, treat other people how you want to be treated. Um, Sarah seems like a very strong character. How much of yourself are you bringing to that role? I think I'm bringing a lot to Sarah. I'm definitely dialing up my strength um, 
it's not an easy thing to say that you're, oh, I'm a strong person or a brave person, but I do get called that, you know, at times. So um, I think I definitely possess those qualities. Um, one of the other things about Sarah is that she's a wife and a mother. Those are things that I am not. And it's exciting to delve into that sort of um, womanhood experience. And what's it like working with uh, your co-stars on this production? The cast is amazing. I can't say enough good things about them. They uh, are all from Winnipeg, uh, not maybe not originally, but they all live here. And I'm the only out-of-towner who's been brought in for this production. So I felt a bit like an outsider. So that is another similarity, I suppose, but not, not necessarily in a bad way. Um, and I feel very supported and I, I I'm just so grateful that this experience has been going the way it has. We've actually interviewed the director, Stephen Shipper, and he's a wonderful talent, so I think the, the play is in good hands. Um, for, the, for those of our listeners who are considering coming or haven't come to RMTC, what would you tell them about what they can expect from, from, this, uh, from this world premiere show? Well, it's very exciting that it's a Manitoba story and it's premiering in Manitoba on the Royal MTC stage, which is a very renowned stage um, theater across Canada. I was very excited to be able to work here for my first time. Um, it's large. Uh, it's you know there's there's high production value, so there's great lighting and and uh, costumes and set design. Um, and I think you can expect a very enjoyable night at the theater and also gain a lot of historical knowledge about the place that you live in. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Sarah Lees, for speaking to us today. Um, Sarah Ballenden is written by Maureen Hunter, and tickets can be purchased at royalmtc.ca. It's playing now on the John Hirsch main stage from now until May 13th. Uh, break a leg tonight, and uh, good luck with the entire run, and thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much. Welcome back to River City 360. Robert and Nolan here with you this morning. And every week we feature some of the latest stories written by citizen journalists over at Community News Commons. Usually Noah Ehrenberg, the convener of the project, will join us to talk about them. But this week is a little bit different. A lot of citizen reporters will often contribute to the website by writing stories or taking photos. This week we have an audio story to share from citizen reporter Armand Martin about the Rainbow Harmony project. It's a choir with members and it's a choir made up of members and allies of the LGBTQ community here in Winnipeg. Armand spoke to several people connected with the choir and got a preview of what you can expect at their spring concert happening one week from today called Prairie Lullaby. Hello, my name is Armand Martin and I am talking with Rainbow Harmony Project choir member Alicia Duick Reed and her wife Jody. What is your role in the choir right now with the RHP? Well, I guess I first joined the choir in 2010, and then I took a little break, and then I came back again in 2012, so I've been singing since then in the choir. In the soprano section, I'm a, a section leader, and I just love singing in RHP. It's a great community of people. And so, Alicia and Jody, at some point, you would have made a decision to become parents. Well, I was pretty sure that that was something that I wanted to do, and Jody was a little bit less sure. 
I think. And so we talked a lot. We had kind of a, a period of discernment where we kind of had time alone to think about whether or not we wanted to have children. And then we had kind of an intensive time of doing lots of reading about different ways people make queer families and what parenting means for different people, especially like queer identifying people. Any opposition from your family or friends? Was anybody opposed? I think that there was some discomfort, definitely. Mm. And we were very open, especially with our parents and our immediate family, talking very openly about the process we were going through and how we were planning to make a family. And, you know, how we went through the process of selecting a donor and why we selected the donor that we did. So we were very open because we really wanted our families to feel comfortable talking with our future child about who they were and where they came from. And for us, that's not a source of shame. So many people think that we conceived our child in a lab, which is a fine way to do it, or in a clinic, and we, we did not. Insemination program that's uh, based out of Toronto, and so we received the sperm here to our doorstep, and we're able to do insemination here at home. Alicia, tell me about legislation around reproductive issues. There's an act, basically, that, that governs reproductive issues in Canada, and right now it's very restrictive. Um, so the rule in Canada is you can't pay anyone for um, donating um, semen or eggs, which means there's a huge shortage in Canada of semen and eggs. You have a one-year-old, so obviously uh, not in school yet. Do you have any concerns about his having uh, same-sex parents and how he might be treated? I think things are getting better, and I hope that they continue to get better in schools in Winnipeg and around Manitoba. As we talked about, as a whole, we should live in Wolseley. We don't live in Wolseley, and we're, we're at this point not going to be living in Wolseley. But Wolseley is definitely the queer middle-class white capital of Winnipeg, and there are a lot of kids of same-sex couples that go to schools there. So our hope is that where we live also there will be some more queer kids. And I think we have the possibility of being in the city that that is... We're not just queer kids, but queer families. The Rainbow Harmony Project Choir welcomed a new director this year, Justin Odwack. Justin is an active performer, choral conductor, and vocal instructor. With his smooth tenor voice, he is a busy soloist who has performed with many choirs of high repute. Here's Justin Ottawak describing the RHP's upcoming concert. The last RHP song is called Seal Lullaby and is dedicated to Alicia and Jody's one-year-old Felix. So Seal Lullaby was written by Eric Whitaker and originally the piece was supposed to be in a Disney animated film. So he was writing this piece based on the White Seal, a book by uh, Kipling. And the, the movie actually ended up not happening. And so he took the piece a few years later and it was commissioned then for somebody to arrange it for choir. And so we have this Seal Lullaby which is kind of taken out of context but so what we've done in this concert is taken a set of three lullabies. So we have the Seal Lullaby, a Prairie Lullaby by Stephen Chapman, and Rojin Kismit Manlan, which is a Yiddish lullaby. The arrangement is uh, by Jacobson. And we've sort of made them into this little set of lullabies, which is really to cater to, to all of our audiences. 
By the way, this concert is entitled Prairie Lullaby, and it occurs Saturday, April 29th at 8 p.m. at Knox United Church, located at 400 Edmonton Street. And now it's time for our segment called This Week in Winnipeg, where we're going to share what's going on this week in our community. As we heard earlier on in the program, Will Week is happening throughout the next week. That's April 24th through 28th. Sessions are free and presented by local lawyers for information purposes only. And they cover how to create a will, how to update an existing will, and how you can easily make a charitable gift in your will. Healthcare directives and power of attorney are also covered. And you can learn more about all of the sessions by visiting winnipegwill.com. Or if you'd like more information, you can call the Winnipeg Foundation at 204-944-9474. RMTC recently premiered Sarah Ballenden, a historical drama written by one of Canada's most accomplished playwrights, Maureen Hunter. For showtimes and ticket information, you can call the RMTC box office at 204-942-6537 or visit royalmtc.ca. Now, my co-host Nolan Bicknell actually has a very great event coming up this... It's happening today, actually, uh, starting at noon... Nolan, tell us a little bit about it. Well, we're going to be gaming for 24 hours straight. I'm an avid video game player. Have been for, I guess, geez, 20, 28 years maybe or so. So me and my team at The Critical Hit are going to be raising money for our fund at the Winnipeg Foundation called A Critical Cause. Gamers for Mental Health. And uh, it's going to be from noon today till noon tomorrow. Wow. It's going to be a lot That's of re- be... a lot of Red Bulls, a lot of coffee, and a lot of video games. Uh, for more information, you can check out criticalhit.tv for more on that. And last year, you raised about four thousand dollars. Yep, we're sitting at our fund is sitting uh, just under five thousand dollars right now. So we're uh, hoping to at least m- at least make that uh, that same level. If you want to donate, you can visit criticalhit.tv. Perfect, and best of luck with the event. Hope Thank you, you so. guys can beat that that high score i hope so awesome i'm feeling i'm feeling optimistic i'm feeling like because we live in such a generous community and because winnipeg is so generous we're gonna we're gonna reach that goal excellent and later today as well there is a fun event in support of the manitoba association for rights and liberties uh we've featured them on the show before uh they're hosting a soup cook-off fundraiser in support of human rights education initiatives right here in manitoba tickets are ten dollars they'll be available at the door it takes place from 11 a.m this morning to 1 p.m that's uh today april 22nd and it's happening at the knox united church 400 edmonton street and you can visit marl.mb.ca for more information on that that's a wrap on this week's episode of River City 360. Thank you so much for listening, and a huge thank you to all of our guests for talking to us today. I'm Nolan Bicknell, signing off for River City 360. And I'm Robert Zirk. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. <laughs>